0: This program is brought to you by Shell Energy, who is helping guide businesses through their energy transition by offering a tailored energy roadmap and solutions across the energy value chain. Learn more at shellenergy.com business. The energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. By 2050, global temperatures are forecast to top 2.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. The Paris Climate Agreement aimed to restrict the rise to 1.5 degrees by 2050. In order to reach this goal, the green shift must come sooner than expected. The iron ore and steel industry emits 7% of global emissions, accounting for 3.4 billion tons of carbon. Carbon emissions in this sector must fall 90% from current levels if we're gonna meet that 1.5 degree target. On the podcast today, how can the iron and steel industry decarbonize? What are the risks and what are the opportunities of doing so? Joining me to discuss these topics today and much, much more is Wood Mackenzie's Milan Wu, who joins us from Singapore. Milan, welcome to Horizons. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, Liz. And as always, I like to get to the bottom line up front. So right away, can you give us one of the key takeaways from today's discussion that all listeners should know? Well,
1: decarbonizing the steel industry is a daunting task. But uh, get to Net Zero by 2050 presents a US dollar 1.4 trillion investment opportunity. I really would love our audience walk away to think of steel decarbonization as an opportunity instead of a mission impossible.
0: Fascinating. I'm really excited to unpack that more. Um, and also joining us today we have Berish Chief, Director at World Steel. Berish, thank you for joining us today from Belgium can you give our listeners a bit of background on the work that you do with the World Steel Association?
2: Sure. Thanks, uh, Liz. I'm very happy to be here and, you know, to sound my opinion uh, on this uh, very important, perhaps the most important topic, decarbonization. And um, I'm the director of industry analysis at the World Steel Association. Uh, World Steel Association is a global association of steel producers. Our members represent about 85% of the global steel production. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, being a global organization, uh, we aim to provide uh, global leadership on all major strategic issues impacting our industry and particularly focusing on uh, sustainability. And what do I do at World Steel Association? Um, at the moment, my main responsibility is to identify the most pressing issues along the steel value chain uh, from energy availability and raw materials availability to decarbonization of our sectors and the prospects of uh, steel-using sectors, let's say, automotive and construction, carry out studies on these issues and uh, provide our members with the necessary intelligence and foresight.
0: That sounds like you have a lot to add to this conversation. So let's go ahead and get right into the discussion. So starting at the top, how does the market look currently? Where does the most iron and steel production come from? And who are the major emitters in the steel value chain?
2: A very brief description of the global uh, steel production landscape. So in 2021, uh, steel industry produced about 2 billion tons of crude steel globally. That was the highest ever global steel production figure and represented a more than doubling of uh, steel output when compared with the year uh, 2000. So very impressive, strong growth uh, in 2000s. And where do this production come from? We all know about China being the largest steel producer or being the largest producer for many commodities. And for steel, China represents about 50% of global output with uh, about 1 million ton- tons of uh, glo- uh, steel production. Then comes India with about 120 million tons of uh, crude steel output in 2021. And then we have a bunch of countries, um, Japan, U.S., Russia, um, and Korea, with an annual output of around 70 to 100 billion tons. And then uh, a few other countries, Turkey, Brazil, Germany, with uh, an annual output of around 40 million tons. That is, in short, every major economy of the world is also a big steel producer. The state of the market... I see recessionary pressures unfortunately gathering strength uh, through 2022. Uh, in the last couple of months, we see uh, in all major or in most major steel producing countries 5% to double digit annual drops. And uh, this kind of reflected the growing impact of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the knock on effects on energy prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we all know about the central bank's efforts to cool down inflationary pressures. That also started denting the uh, already weakened global economic uh, momentum.
0: Interesting. So, Milan, I'm curious from your side, can you explain a little bit more about the iron ore part of the steel value chain and emissions around that? Yeah,
1: so 2 billion tons of crude steel production globally you have heard from Barris. So we need a lot of iron ore. So yeah. total iron ore supply globally is about 2.4 billion tons, of which uh, seaborne trade is about 1.6 billion tons. And Australia exports the most. In fact, that accounts for about 55% of the global iron ore exports. And that's followed by Brazil. Brazil accounts about uh, 21%. And uh, quite naturally, China is the biggest importer because China is the biggest crude steel production country. There are a bunch of Tier 2 and Tier 3 players in Australia, South Africa, Canada, India, CIS, etc., they would supply both uh, iron ore into the seabowl market as well as domestically. In terms of steel emissions, the two biggest steel producer, China India, they are the two biggest carbon emission emitters in the world. Yeah. Uh, because these two countries are still predominantly rely on very carbon intensive blast furnace route of steel making. One interesting fact here is that Number one spot is China, who emits about more than 60% of carbon in the Steel value chain, Mm -hmm. and followed by India, who's the second biggest emitter. But India only accounts for 7% of the global total. So you can see the differences between number one, number
0: two is huge, and therefore highlights the elephant in the room. Interesting. And so just for our listeners out there who maybe are not as keen on the ways of how iron ore gets turned into steel in steel manufacturing. You mentioned the blast furnace manufacturing process at a high level. What is that?
1: <laughs> Very good question. I think a little bit of context is needed. So steel is principally made by two methods. One is your blast furnace, blast oxygen furnace. I will call it blast furnace. The other one is electric arc furnaces. I'll call it EAF going forward in this discussion. So essentially your blast furnace route is you uh, the steel makes to make new or virgin steel by using iron ore for example using coke to reduce uh, all the cake making raw materials uh, recipe yeah. as you would like can call it electric arc furnaces essentially is to use to recycle steel scrap so we melt scrap by using electricity and then making steel this way yeah but the key differences could be Blast furnace route is very carbon intensive. So, in fact, it's four times more than EAF. So, for one ton of hot metal produced, really? on average, the blast furnace route will emit about two tons of CO two. So, EAF emits about zero point five tons. In some countries like Brazil, when, uh, some steel plants has access to uh, renewable electricity. They can further reduce this emission down to zero point two tons of hot metal uh, for you know, produced for, uh, sorry, 0.2 tons of uh, CO2 uh, per ton of hot metal produced. So hopefully that sets some uh, background for the for the listeners.
0: Yeah, and that's actually, those numbers are huge, especially as we're looking at our journey to decarbonize. So in the intro to the show, I talked a little bit about the necessity of the iron and steel sector to decarbonize. But Milan, can you draw a little bit more comparison between the current state and where we need to be if we're looking at a 1.5 degree warming pathway?
1: I think in a nutshell, the the task is really massive because in order to get to net zero, let's say 1.5 degree scenario, the global carbon emission needs to reduce by more than 90%. This is coming from very high base because 2021, the global steel industry actually emitted three billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere. Three billion. Three billion tons. Wow! So to get to net zero, that means we have to reduce the carbon emission to around 208 million tons. And then let me remind us: it's 2022 now. We have under three decades to do that. So to make it very clear the task is really big. But on the other hand, the world will still need steel and iron for economic growth. So in our forecast, uh, we, we think the world, to support the global steel demand, the world will need to produce 2.2 billion tons of steel by 2050. This is 15% of increase from 2021 levels. So this means we have to find a way to produce more steel and at the same time, reduce the carbon emission quite drastically. So if we want to get to net zero, uh, the way we make steel will have to change drastically. So I'm saying this because as of last year, 70% of world crude steel production was made by the blast furnace route. So in a 1.5 degree world, the less carbon intensive EF route of steelmaking must dominate. And uh, the steelmakers will need to use much more cleaner metallics, such as your scrap and direct reduced iron. The low carbon technologies must be developed and commercialized. And we need to have enough supply of commercially viable hydrogen, renewables, energies, and carbon capture storage capacity.
0: So, Bearish, interested to hear from your perspective what do you think of this roadmap? And what do you think some of the -the on-the-ground actions are from the steel industry players here?
2: Well, Malan explained very well that this is a race against time, isn't it? The the scale of the challenge is massive. Clearly, we need to find and invest in in the most efficient uh, ways of decarbonization. Most efficient in terms of capital use, most time efficient, and most energy efficient ways of uh, decarbonization. And here I'd like to uh, add a few, let's say, uh, dimensions uh, to to Malan's description of the um, decarbonization roadmap of our industry. Well, First of all, we should underline the fact that a successful decarbonization requires a concerted transformation of the whole steel value chain. Uh, For example, some of the uh, breakthrough steelmaking technologies that is being uh, developed currently, such as hydrogen steel making, would require massive amounts of green energy. Hence, only targeted and accelerated development of uh, green energy generation capacity will enable uh, steel industries uh, decarbonization co- going forward. And secondly, it is obvious that development and deployment of certain technologies will take time. This is not only the case for steel industry. For example, we see the electrification of mobility, right? It's, it's, it has started, it, has, it is picking up, but we are only at the very beginning. So these kind of transformations take a lot of time, but we cannot wait. So, and there are things that we can do already. And here we see a great potential as World Steel Association. Our step-up program shows that there is about 15 to 20% improvement potential in carbon dioxide emissions for many facilities around the world. And this potential can be achieved by using the existing technology in place on most sites. uh, If the industry applies just the best practices from better performing sites uh, across the world. So can you imagine there can already be, uh, let's say 10% gains uh, just by using the currently installed facilities and currently available uh, solutions. I think this is very important to stress. And what we see currently Many major steelmakers, not only steelmakers, but the whole value chain, raw materials suppliers, steel users. Uh, we saw them announcing quite ambitious uh, decarbonization targets with very well studied, solid and credible decarbonization roadmaps. And particularly for steel industry, I'm very happy to see that all options are being explored. For example, increasing scrap use or biomass use to collaboration with raw material suppliers or steel users and to investing in uh, research and development of uh, breakthrough steelmaking technologies such as hydrogen steelmaking and uh, carbon capture and use.
0: All right. There are a lot of things to unpack in that last sentence you just said. I want to make sure we're able to really highlight on all of those so that we can tie them back to how it relates to the points that Barish made what are the ore-based metallics that you were mentioning? Um,
1: okay, so there are few new technologies uh, which has very low carbon emission and even zero emission potential. So one of which is uh, using green hydrogen to direct reduce iron ore to make direct reduce iron, which then be feeding to electric arc furnaces and it makes steel from that route. And while the project currently going is hybrid project in Sweden. That's so cool. But yeah, that is still in pilot uh, phase. Yeah. But we expect it to commercialize by later part of 2020. And this this technology is uh, is is we hope it really uh,
0: commercialize and scale up to a to a big extent. This is a question that's just really out there, but what I think about steel being produced, it seems like such an integral part of civilization. It's a key part of everything we build. So are there a lot of new advances in steel technology and how we handle iron? Because hearing hearing the two of you describe the roadmaps, describe how manufacturers are really looking at what's on the horizons, it just seems from a human perspective, fundamentally cool that we're continuing to evolve things that our ancestors have done and built with. So is is this a continual improvement, or have there been a significant step change in improvements to how we're handling both iron and steel in response to an increased demand for for that roadmap towards net zero?
2: Yeah, at um, least indeed, uh, steelmaking technology has been perfected, optimized, let's say, for more for a, for a century now, right? Yeah. However, what we uh, see, or what the decarbonization roadmaps in front of us suggest. Yes, there will be continued improvements in the current technology. The the current technology will continue to be optimized, become much more energy efficient and much less uh, carbon dioxide intensive. However, this won't be enough. We will need to uh, bring in uh, new technologies, new ways of steelmaking or capturing the carbon in a massive scale in the picture at an increasingly bigger scale so that the decarbonization uh, challenge can be uh, accomplished. So it's, uh, as I've said, exploring all the options and uh, actually investing in the development of all the options. We really need all of them uh, to succeed in this challenge. And back to your question on ore-based metallics, starting from uh, the current situation, I mentioned globally we are producing about 2 billion tons of crude steel. So this would require what we said metallics, right? That was your question. So 2 billion tons of crude steel would require about 2.2 billion tons of metallics either scrap or some kind of purer form of iron, which can be produced by blast furnaces or another route, which is called direct reduction. And this big pool of 2.2 billion tons, only about 750 to 800 million tons of that was scrap. That is currently at the moment, we need about 1.4 billion tons of ore-based metallics. 100 million tons of that is coming from direct reduction and the rest, the bigger part coming from blast furnaces. And the thing is, We will need, as Malan explained, more or less this amount of ore-based metallics in the next five, six decades maybe. And that's why, and even if the direct reduction part shows very strong growth, we will still need a very big amount to come from blast furnaces. And hence, the efforts towards the carbonization of the blast furnaces will be accelerating and intensifying uh, going forward.
0: of the top 25 steelmakers only 13 have set a date for achieving net zero and really only a handful have committed any capital to this cause and from our discussion so far it sounds like capital is going to be key the top five iron ore miners have also set net zero targets and three miners aim to spend 16 to 17 billion through 2030 to shave 30-ish to 35 percent off their operational emissions is this enough is this something where government and policymakers can really step in to, to set more ambitious targets? Barish, let's, let's have you kick this one off.
2: Uh, yes, this is enough. And this will be growing, accelerating. And, you know, all these efforts will be int- intensifying, as I've said. Actually, when we look at the roadmaps, they come with very clear timelines. And we see that investments will be growing. And actually, the bigger parts of the investments will be made uh, after or, or with 2030s. So currently we are in the research and development phase, for example, for some of these uh, breakthrough steelmaking technologies. And this comes in phases, right? So first research and then the uh, construction of a pilot facility, which will happen in 2020s for many steelmakers. And then this will evolve into a demo demo stage and then uh, eventually an industrial scale uh, facility. So this will grow gradually uh, in phases. And what we see is, uh, as I've said, many steelmakers already, many iron ore producers already came up with very well studied credible roadmaps. And those who have not yet announced a decarbonization target or shared a decarbonization roadmap, we all know that their countries or whichever jurisdiction they operate in mostly have decarbonization targets. So, so they are subject to decarbonization targets. And we know that all major steel producers are uh, seriously working uh, very hard uh, on this front. So in my opinion, we can comfortably say that most of the steel value chain, really, not only the steel part, but the whole value chain has plans for and working towards a decarbonization target, which is in line with the Paris Agreement of uh, keeping global warming at below uh, 2 Celsius degrees.
1: I was going to say, not enough, (laughs) because uh, (laughs) (laughs) because it's great to see all these net zero targets being set, right? But the commitment to capital expenditure is far between. You know, I can give an example. In in Europe, uh, the top four uh, steel producers, they account for 40% of the total steel carbon emissions, right? But, uh, you know, three out of four have set net zero targets, but only one has disclosed capital commitment Really, to achieve the roadmap. You know, kudos to the intention. And I perhaps, Paris, I think maybe we need to give it time. This is when the industry is trying to figure things out. But... As we are on a race you know so we need to really pick up the the real real uh commitment like miners for example uh, we we see clear uh commitment commitments like Liz you have said top three miners actually fmg just uh announced their net zero commitment a few days ago so that capital expenditure should add up to should add another six billion dollars uh by 2030 so that's good news but A lot of miners are really cash rich, even at the price levels in 2022 with high inflation. But uh, we have seen very little appetite to invest in uh, new projects that will provide higher grade iron ore, not yet, at least.
0: Wind, solar, natural gas. How much? How little? How many hows does it take to meet your business goals? Shell Energy knows the energy transition can throw a lot at you. Opinions, facts, numbers, and data seem endless and can cloud the path ahead. But what if they can make this whole transition a bit easier to navigate? Shell Energy has the size, scale, and solutions to help move you forward. And while they can take you from A to Z, they know that the most important move is often just getting from A to B. And they're already doing it with some of the world's leading companies providing new and innovative solutions to help you manage energy consumption and reduce your carbon footprint by providing tailored energy roadmaps that make sense for your business. So keep on moving forward. And with Shell Energy's expertise, what once seemed challenging will seem easier by the day. Learn more at shellenergy.com slash business. It was mentioned that achieving net zero by 2050 in the industry presents a 1.4 trillion dollar opportunity for players across the iron and steel supply chain what are these opportunities because 1.4 trillion is a lot of money milan can you shed some light here well, the
1: 1.4 trillion investment opportunity will entail upgrading the existing steelmaking routes and adopting new technologies and uh, offset measures and exploring new high-grade iron ore mines. So if we break it down, uh, about 800 to $900 billion will be absolutely essential to make the current uh, steelmaking infrastructure green. And setting up new DII and electric arc furnaces and developing a hydrogen ecosystem for steel industry.
0: Berish, is there anything from your side to add or any thoughts?
2: Actually, this $1.4 trillion is the investment necessary only in the value chain, steel value chain, right, Malan? Yeah. So outside the steel value chain, in terms of investments in green energy, in terms of development uh, investments in development of a hydrogen economy and carbon capture infrastructure, so on, probably there will need to be a few more trillion dollars of investment requirement. So in total, really, uh, we are talking about a four or five trillion dollar investment requirement for the decarbonization of the uh, steel industry.
0: Good point. So let's shift focus and focus on China for a moment. China accounts for 62 percent of global steel emissions. So any chance of decarbonizing success will depend on its commitment. How can China make steps to decarbonize? What needs to happen? What does that roadmap broadly look like?
1: Well, I think just as you said, what China does will really move the needle. I think we need to make that very clear. And because China is the biggest single steel-producing country, and it counts more than 60% of the global uh, carbon emission in the steel value chain, in order for China to get to net zero, it needs to cut its carbon emission by more than 95%. I think we can look at this question in two ways. First is, um, what happens if business as usual? And what else do China needs to do? So China's uh, steel consumption is maturing and its uh, production has peaked and entered into a declining trajectory. So without doing anything, China's crude steel production will actually decline about 20% over the next three decades. This will effectively reduce about 30% of carbon emission already. So this is great news. You know, China has also undergone a series of capacity swap programs, uh, which has helped cleaning up its steel industry. So in the, for example, in the past uh, five years, China eradicated heavily polluting induction furnaces, which is one of the older technologies and uh, added 37 million tonnes of ERF capacity. So this reduced carbons and obviously helped support their blue sky policies. What China needs to do next is obviously when their blast furnaces come to major uh, refurbishment, the government needs to continue to reinforce or uh, incentivize uh, swap to ERF instead of new, installing new blast furnaces. China obviously has also been increasing its scrap uh, usage, uh, even mandated in its 14th five-year plan. But we think the speed is still too slow. Um, China is uh, very—they—they—they—they uh, uh, they, they, they already uh, in, investing a lot in renewable energy capacities, and also in the steel, in the steel space. What it does is that steel mills obviously undertaking a number of blast furnace uh, efficiency programs. So all in all, these, all these strategies will add up to about 55% emission reduction. So, yeah, we already added that into our base case. But remember, China needs to reduce more than 95% to get to net zero in the next three decades. So what else can China to do more? And exactly like what Barris was saying, um, China will need to adopt an commercialise and adopt uh, low-carbon technologies quite quickly and need to use much more cleaner metallics such as scrap and uh, direct reduced iron and in parallel the industry needs to completely uh, change its energy mix from hydro-based to renewable-based and in addition China will need about 60 million tonnes of CCUS capacity to help them to get to 95% reduction. Mala, may
2: I jump in, you know, to complement a few of the very uh, important points you raised. One of them, China peaking in terms of steel production. That certainly helps, right? Because decarbonizing in a growth environment is certainly a much more difficult task, right? And there are very strong signs that Chinese steel production peaked in 2020. So that's one very good news for us. Secondly, the governance characteristics of China. You gave a very good example, the supply side reforms. Uh, China implemented in the steel and uh, various other sectors, starting with 2017, we saw very quick changes, quite big changes in in several industries in a matter of years. So this governance characteristic is that once a decision is made, uh, it seems China can mobilize resources and various stakeholders. Uh, rather quickly and rather efficiently towards that uh, objective. So I think these governance characteristics will also be helping China in its uh, decarbonization challenge going forward. Another issue is, of course, um, increasing the share of EAFs, And certainly, EAFs will be playing and increasing the bigger role in China's steel production. And here we should mention the growing scrap availability in the country. Scrap availability will be growing globally in the next few decades. And this will be one of the biggest levers for the industry for decarbonization, right? Because as Malan explained, usage of a sc- uh, one ton of scrap really avoids a very big amount of carbon dioxide emissions. And in China, currently, obsolete scrap, that is scrap that comes out of scrapped still containing look goods like automobiles or scrap that comes out of demolishment of buildings, is currently at around 100 million tons only. And by 2050, this will grow to around 300 million tons. So adding on top of that other sources of scrap, the country will be able to use a scrap pool of around 400, 450 million tons by 2050. And already the peaking of its production, the ability to use a much bigger uh, scrap pool will help the country to reduce its carbon dioxide emissions Drastically. And this is really without using the breakthrough technologies, without introducing any carbon capture uh, yet. So, really, China has a lot of advantages on its sides in, in this massive challenge. And I think the needle is already improving. We see these pilot projects in, in all of the options, technology uh, options, and solutions for uh, decarbonization in the country.
1: Yeah, I would like to add to what you just said, Barris. Um, there are a few more things I think the government can do. I think, yes, I agree with you. China and India are the two countries we're optimistic about, uh, you know, increasing supply of scrap pool for the world in the future. What matters here is that, you know, in order to increase the EF share of production, there are a couple of challenges because currently the EAF sizes are quite small. And uh, they can tolerate lower quality of scrap with slightly higher impurity because it doesn't really matter that much. They are producing loan product using construction. But if we are going to reverse the role of EF and BF in the future, in the 1.5 degree world, uh, the EFs need to be much bigger. And we we need enough supply of scrap. We need higher quality of scrap. And we need the technology to be able to produce higher quality of steel products via the EF route. So, the government obviously can help to maybe reinforce uh, recycling policies and encouraging the putting policies in place to support the recycling uh, industry to not only provide more scrap but as well as higher quality of scrap and as well as encourage the investment on EIF capacity installation.
2: Indeed. Malan, I'm very happy you raised this point, because sometimes people just think it is possible to um, switch from one technology to other technology overnight. However, um, each of these two main technologies, that is EIFs and uh, an integrated facility, let's say, They might uh, be meeting different requirements in terms of scale, in terms of product portfolio. They are a part of a value chain, right, in terms of raw materials requirements, energy requirements. So it's really not possible to switch to another technology uh, overnight, maybe only gradually and through phases. And uh, in China, one specific initiative, let me say, that I'm excited about is the innovation of BOFs so that much higher amounts of scrap scrap can be used in BOFs because we all know China has a massive integrated steelmaking capacity and, and they are relatively of younger age, that is, they can be used for several more decades. Um, uh, so if this can be achieved, if this innovation is successful and much higher amounts of scrap can be charged than BOFs in China, this will also help uh, the country a lot in its uh, decarbonization challenge.
1: Well, I have two more things to add, since you, you mentioned it, Barris. Absolutely. <laughs> The other challenging fact in China is that its blast furnace fleet is relatively young. So 90% of the country's uh, crude steel production coming from blast furnace route. So it's a real trade-off here economically. So what's the government, government's role in incentivize and helping the transition from or phasing out blast furnace and at least like in another 10, 15 years time, making sure when we are when the industry needed a new capacity, is EF coming online, not another BF come online?
2: We should mention the all the opportunities or all the options that are being explored to reduce blast furnaces uh, carbon dioxide emissions intensity yes, uh, charging hydrogen using biomass uh, using oxy fuel burners and so on and so forth. so really. A blast furnace 20 years from now will be a totally different creature than a blast furnace of nowadays. And we'll probably have a much, much less um, uh, carbon dioxide intensity. That's true. And we have the technology or we are working on that. Whatever remaining amount of emissions could be captured and used. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I'm quite optimistic on, on China too.
0: <laughs> Man, this is, this is, I've learned so much about steel and iron and emissions. This is awesome. Um, I want to talk quickly about green premiums. They're inevitable. Green premiums are inevitable. <laughs> what could this look like in the coming decades? And where do you think they'd have the most impact? Berish, curious to hear from your side.
2: Let's start thinking about the fundamentals, right? Um, yeah. First of all, the demand. So what will be the demand for green or as this World steel Association, we prefer to call them lower carbon steel or lower carbon materials so certainly when we look at major uh, steel using sectors such as automotive or construction especially the uh, major companies have announced ambitious decarbonization targets some of them announced scope 3 targets which mean they have also announced targets to decrease the embodied carbon or that is the uh, materials the carbon intensity of the materials they they use in their uh, operations or some targets such as increasing the share of recycled materials content to a certain level so what we see at the moment is that certainly the activity is picking up so the demand for low carbon materials or recycled materials is picking up and we should just expect it to accelerate uh, going forward in my humble opinion by late 2020s, uh, as uh, carbon costs grow, as um, pressures for decarbonization grow, we should see a strong growth of the demand for low carbon products, initially from a very low base, however, eventually representing a significant and rapidly growing share uh, of the total demand. I think this is one very important uh, fundamental that um, we should uh, continue to monitor. Uh, and I think governments could also uh, play a role here, Malan, uh, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Government uh, can, for example, use lower carbon steel in their infrastructure project. You know, it can uh, give incentives for people to buy electric vehicles. Uh, I was reading uh, in EU, uh, 21 out of 26 countries have in such incentives in place. They also have incentives uh, for people to scrap their car the current car, this kind of incentives, just few little examples. But Baris, you mentioned something really good on the on the demand side. So maybe I can talk about the green premium, what does it mean on the production side? So, so in our analysis, what we think is the cost and the pace of decarbonization will vary by region. So mature economies will decarbonize quicker than their uh, emerging country counterparts, though they will probably incur higher uh, abatement costs. So we estimate that steel makers might have to cough up uh, $100, up to $100 per ton. Uh, or this is equivalent to 15 to 20% of their total production cost to themselves, align themselves to 1.5 degree goals by 2050 so what does it look like so that means mature steel consuming economies will end up spending maybe 1.5 times more than emerging economies so india and uh, southeast asia they are highly cost sensitive markets so they will be more cautious uh, in their approach to decarbonization these regions are less inclined to invest capital in upcoming green technologies. So we believe emerging economies are more likely to follow the evolving green trends once commercialization has been achieved, therefore translating to lower carbon abatement costs.
0: Oh man, I I hate to say it, but we are just about at time. This has been a fascinating conversation. So let's go ahead and sum this up. What are the main risks and the main opportunities for the industry in the race to decarbonize? That's a big question. I'm sorry. I don't envy you as I ask this question to you. Mm. Bearish, let's start with you.
2: I'll, I'll go ahead. Okay. So clearly we are racing against time. So the numbers that Malin presented shows that we are racing against time and the scale of the challenge is really massive. But unfortunately, we see that geopolitical shifts or political cycles can uh, cause delays in this process. I think this is one of the biggest risks. And uh, I've mentioned a few times, and Malan also mentioned a few times that uh, we need to see coordinated, uh, concerted uh, development, right? And here, really, development of a green energy generation capacity uh, plays this, plays a crucial role. So we really need to see targeted and accelerated growth of green energy generation capacity and also green uh, hydrogen production capacity. A third risk I'd like to mention, and then then I'll stop and. Um, uh, pass it to Um, Malan an important risk actually wishful thinking and here I'd uh, like to uh, actually uh, take some uh, cues from uh, my dear friend Rutger Gilderim he wrote a fantastic paper pointing out to this risk the paper is titled Iron Making Between a Pony and Pink Unicorn, a very interesting inspiring uh, paper I really suggest reading, so what's wishful thinking and how to avoid it so I believe we shouldn't assume that one specific technology will become the savior or we shouldn't assume that the problems we are faced with, such as uh, higher quality raw materials availability or green energy availability will disappear overnight. So we will we should expect to see gradual improvements, gradual developments on all of these fronts. and that's, And that's why I believe we should also focus on a gradual and concerted decarbonization of the a whole steel value chain. So this is so much from me on the risks.
1: I think it pretty much covered everything, Baris. I I just want to repeat one of your uh, key message is that this is a global challenge and we need a collaborative action globally and a unified approach across the entire value chain to turn risks into opportunities. I just want to stress
0: that, you know, So with that, thank you both for this insightful conversation today. I would be remiss to not just thank the steel industry as I'm sitting on the 26th floor of a skyscraper looking out into London for being in a safe building. So wrapping things up, Milan, thank you again so much for joining us. Is there anyone you'd like to give a special thank you or shout out to today? Oh, I would love to shout out to... uh all
1: the amazing people in my life, it's very vague, but uh, every single day I feel that, you know, there's just so much positive energy around, which made my life so much easier, including all of you here. And I'm grateful for having a chance to do purposeful work and, uh, and making a small impact
0: in the world. And speaking of that work, where can listeners learn more about the work you and your team are doing at Wood Mackenzie?
1: Um, you can visit Wood Mackenzie website and uh, there's a page for the Horizons. Please click on the link or you can get in touch with us on LinkedIn and uh, we will answer any questions or have a chat with you if you have
0: any suggestions or any questions about our analysis. Berish, same questions for you. Anyone you want to give a special shout out to or thank you today?
2: Please. First of all, uh, thanks a lot. I enjoyed this uh, a lot. Thanks to Malan and Wood for, you know, inviting me and giving this opportunity. Of course, I'd like to thank uh, the association, all my colleagues working there. And of course, our members, you know, supporting our work to my family. And also, um, I can recommend our uh, listeners, those interested listeners, also visit our website, uh, World Steel Association or worldsteel.org. We have a very uh, useful, informative section on climate action where they can see uh, very good examples of the initiatives undertaken by our members And actually by uh, uh, everyone along the uh, steel value chain. So thanks again.
0: Thank you both so much. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you. Thanks. In order for the iron and steel industry to achieve net zero, a complete transformation of the value chain is required. This will, of course, come with risks, but also opportunities. The risks. A fragmentation of supply geographically, so emerging economies are unable to transition to sustainable furnaces. Vulnerability to price fluctuations, premiums and carbon taxes, which may scare price-sensitive consumers. And finally, greenwashing by iron and steel makers under the guise of ESG compliance. With that risk, however, comes great opportunity. A low-carbon diet for iron and steel will create opportunities for growth in parallel industries players across the hydrogen ecosystem, green energy producers and electric vehicles and hydrogen haulage trucks will all benefit. The bottom line, decarbonization is essential in order to keep global heating to 1.5 degrees. The iron and steel industry has a massive opportunity to lead that charge. Thank you for joining us for the September edition of the Horizons Podcast. Thanks to Milan and Barish for being with us today. As always, I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and we'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here though, because now we're gonna leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers.
3: Thanks Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, chief analyst at Wood Mackenzie. At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topic. So here they are. The world is going to need more steel, perhaps one third more by 2050 with global population growth and rising GDP. But the steel industry has high carbon intensity And that's got to change if we are to achieve net zero goals in time. It's a challenge for all steel producers but China responsible for 60 percent of all steel production is going to be key to success. What we've learned from pedal to the metal is that there is a pathway to success. First, the production process. The industry has to recycle more steel and switch technology to use low carbon energy, including renewables, hydrogen, and carbon capture and storage. Second, carbon policy. Big steel producers, including China and India, as well as mature economies like the EU and US, must embrace carbon pricing. Third, investment. Governments have to incentivize the iron and steel industry to invest the $1.4 trillion decarbonization will cost. Thanks for listening to this, the September edition of Horizons. Thanks to Milan and Barris for joining us and delving into the challenges and opportunities for green steel. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Join us in a couple of weeks when we'll look at the outlook for copper, the metal that's the key enabler of electrification in the energy transition. See you then.